Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Kia and welcome to our changing world on RNZ National with Alison Balance and Veronica Maduna. We're back with genetics, this time with BBC broadcaster Adam Rutherford. He's been in New Zealand to discuss how genomics and new genetic tools are changing how we think about medicine, agriculture, conservation and even our relationships with our own evolutionary cousins, including the Neanderthals. As the cost of gene sequencing is dropping fast and more genomes are being completed, Adam tells Veronica that the next challenge is to make sense of the vast amount of genetic information. Genomes are only useful in comparison to others. So, you know, genomics is a comparative science. So one genome is a whole bunch of information about genes, but once you have two, you have more than double the amount of information because you can compare them. And that's within a species. But when you start comparing them to other species, you you have the emergence of evolutionary signals within within DNA, within genetics. And so all of those original sequences, all of those original species were part of the setup of the the, the sort of genomic revolution that, that has been ongoing for the last 10 or, or 20 years. But you're absolutely right. I mean, we're generating more data than, than we can process at the moment. And that's fine. That just means that we've got to create better ways of curating that data, curating those genomes, so that they become resources that are useful. The Human Genome Project was a mechanism for annotating, but not just sequencing, but for annotating the genome. So it becomes a useful resource for geneticists to go into and say, well, we know what gene is here, which direction it's pointing in, what promoter sequences, how it's controlled during development or during life. And, and using that information subsequently to, to, to understand the interactions between that gene and other genes. Has so, the same effort gone into reading the structural genes and the genes that actually code for a protein as well as the genes that might just be regulatory, they might have a control function of sorts? I don't think there's been any sort of separation between those two things. There is always an emphasis on genes that code for proteins, of which we now know there are around about 20,000. And in humans? In humans, in humans, yes. That has always been a major focus because those are the functional elements of an organism. That's the machinery behind our physiology or the way we work, really. Right. So uh, the, the line I say is that all organisms are made of or by proteins, and proteins are coded for by genes. But I guess when it, you know, the big revelation, one of the big revelations of the Human Genome Project results was that genes make up less than 2% of the total amount of DNA that a human has. Now, the rest of it is sort of structural, things that make hold chromosomes together and... and are part of the sort of cell cycle of how DNA works within a cell. Other bits were sort of control regions, bits that turn genes on and off, switches and, and um, 
things like that. Lots of it was mysterious chunks of repeats, sequences that we didn't really know what they were doing, but they appeared to be repeated in small chunks or large chunks. And then there's, there, there was other stuff which which may fall into that category of junk DNA. So it's been called junk DNA for a while, and I think that term gets overused. But the, the point is that we couldn't understand any aspect of human biology without doing that project, without starting the Human Genome Project and having the landscape in front of us of what we didn't know in front of us. And that, that's for humans, and it applies to every species. I was just going to ask you about all the numbers and numbers of other genomes that we've been collecting from useful animals. All the laboratory animals have been sequenced now, from the nematodes, the elegans, right through to mice and rats. But also we're collecting a lot of genomes from threatened species, rare species. How is that going to help? What's the goal beyond the actual sequencing? It's not hypothesis-driven science in the sense that we're asking specific questions of the data that's being generated, it's more that if collecting the data provides us with the ability to ask many hypothesis-driven questions of, of that data set. So the answer is, well, many things. Once you have the data available to you, there are many, many ways that you can interrogate a genome to ask it all sorts of things. In terms of conservation, one of the key things is you can look at a species and see how much genetic diversity there is within that species – and what that means, it gives you an indication of their sort of robustness against extinction and the, the pressures, often the, the, the human influence pressures of the environment in which they live. The Kakapo Genome Project here in New Zealand, which is an amazing, amazing idea and wonderful that it's been crowdfunded. All of those genomes are going to be sequenced. So the Kakapo is going to be the first organism on Earth to have not just its entire genome sequence, but it, the entire genome of every single member of that species. The entire species, yeah. Right. Now, from an evolutionary point of view, that is going to be a wealth of information of what happens when a species is hopefully continued to be in recovery from being so close to extinction that it was pretty much gone. Looking within the genome of the Kakapo and all 125 of them, we are going to see some very interesting things which presumably have never been measured before about what happens to a species when its population has become so small that there would have been very little genetic diversity. Genetic diversity is really important for species survival and we hope that the Kakapo is now going to survive as a result of conservation efforts. But we're going to see some interesting things in its genome because it was so, so threatened for so long. So from, a, from an intellectual point of view, that is going to be fascinating. What about taxonomy itself? You know, an old science in that sense, but just recently it was ancient DNA that helped to determine that the kiwi is more closely related to the Madagascar elephant bird than to the moa or any other bird in that group. Do you see any, any sort of major reshuffles in taxonomy? Through genomics? Colossal, more than can be accounted for. This is actually the subject of my, my next book, which isn't out until September. And this room that we're sitting in has been... I haven't left this room for about 24 hours because I've been writing it. But specifically about humans, but ancient DNA in looking at Neanderthal genomes, but also the genomes of these other species that have been discovered, such as the Denisovans. It has upended human evolution. It, it has radically transformed the relationship between the humans that have existed over the last 50,000 years, to the extent that I think there is a very reasonable argument to make, and I do make it, uh, that Neanderthals were not a separate species 
from Homo sapiens. They, they were a sort of proto-species, an embryonic species that never quite managed to grow to the, the level to survive into the future. But the fact that we interbred with them, and every week there is a new paper which says some different aspect of the fact that Homo sapiens interbred with Homo neanderthalensis, and the dates from which we did that have now gone right the way back to 100,000 years ago in Siberia, and, and that has fundamentally changed the timings of when uh, our species was thought to have left Africa. So the whole out-of-Africa idea still totally robust, but the timings of it are, are, have been turned on their head. So we have, we have genomic information which says that Homo sapiens, our ancestors, were in Siberia almost 30 or 40,000 years before we have physical remains for, for us, bones, you know, the traditional form of paleoanthropology. So ancient DNA has transformed our understanding of human evolution really only in the last five years. And so do you know how much Neanderthal you have in you? I'm assuming you've had your genome I sequenced. Have. I have, and uh, by one of the commercial companies, and it came out at 2.7%. Congratulations. Thank you. Which is pretty standard for most Europeans. Um, I actually think that's probably an overestimate, which is based on the, um, the academic literature the, the published scientific literature is probably a little bit lower than that, but that, that's what the commercial company comes back with. But that's perfectly typical. That's a perfectly typical number for Europeans. And I'm, I'm guessing you have European ancestry. I'll, I'll bet you it's and roughly the same. I have a similar number of Neanderthal in me. Exactly. <laughs> 3% Denisovan, though. I'm proud of that. Oh, well, that's quite high. Yes, it is. So <laughs> wh where, where does that come from? East European heritage. Okay. I think. But yes, that's really that. interesting. I expect, you know, here in New Zealand, that the proportion of Neanderthal in the settlers and the Euro Europeans who've come here will be roughly the same. But I imagine that there'll be more Denisovan DNA in the Maori population than in, in European. I don't know whether those studies have been done, but, you know, that's just what we're beginning to understand from the way uh, humans have migrated across the earth. So that's just one of a zillion questions that can be asked. Now, can I bring you back to animal genomes, though? Of course. And you mentioned evolutionary biology in your background. Can we see DNA that has been deposited in our genome or more highly developed animals? Can we see DNA from other animals that's deposited in there? And I'm thinking all the way through to right back to the beginning of life, really. DNA, bacterial DNA deposited up the tree, out the web, whichever way you want to describe it? It's a very interesting question you're asking, and so there's, there's sort of two versions to this, two answers to this, this type of question. The first is that we see, all species see a lot of viral DNA that is, at some point in our evolutionary history, has infected our cells and infected our genomes and not necessarily had a, a, a negative effect, not necessarily had a deleterious effect and has effectively been incorporated. Now, I've, I've seen varying numbers on what that proportion is, but it might be, it might be that up to 8% of the human genome originated from viruses, which is, a, which, you know, it's quite a, a staggering amount, really. The second thing is, well, we've already talked about a little bit about how Neanderthal DNA has been incorporated in, into our genomes, and which is part of my argument why Neanderthals shouldn't be considered a separate species to us. But much back in the first billion years or so of life on Earth, so sort of four billion to three or even two billion years, the, the Earth was populated exclusively by single-celled organisms, which are either bacteria or their cousins, archaea, similar-looking but very different single-celled organisms. Those guys do things that, that complex life can't do, which is they can interchange 
genes between siblings, right? Between between mature cells, we can only pass on DNA from parents to child, generation to generation. Exactly, but bacteria in our care can swap genes effectively willy nilly. So th- this this is problematic for the whole concept of the tree of life, because the more we look at the tree of life, which is a good metaphor, a useful metaphor, but the more we look at it, the more it looks less like a tree and more like a a sort of, yeah, a thicket, a tangled bank. Because at the origin of life, there's, there's the free exchange of genetic material, of genes between organisms, possibly between species. We can't really tell what those species were three or four billion years ago. But it's, that's not a tree at all. That's a web. That's a, that's a net. So part of my mission is to just slightly ease up on, on the tree of life metaphor and, and persuade people that we should stop thinking about it so much as a tree-like structure and, and more like a, a, a net because there's much more genetic interchange, certainly in bacteria, than we have historically given credit for. And now it's looking like, you know, the, the old-fashioned model of our end of evolution of the sort of tree for humans, well, that's just looking like it was wrong now. Those, those ni- nice, neat branches. But we don't really know the relationship between so many of the species that we used to put on a nice tree, you know, the Australopithecus, the you know, Homo erectus, all of the many human ancestors. We don't actually know whether they were ancestors at all. Genetics is helping us to understand the, those relationships. Unfortunately, it can only go so far back. DNA is a, is a, it's a really it's a stable beast. molecule. Mm. So many of the species are in Africa where it's dry and hot and those conditions aren't very good for preserving DNA. Siberia, Germany, you know, the, the, the further north you go, the better DNA you get out of these ancient samples. And that's going to be the same for whatever species you look at. Can I just, speaking of Siberia and mammoths, can I ask you about de-extinction? I mean, is our knowledge of genomes for starters, but also the, the speed at which we develop new genomic and genetic editing or gene editing techniques, is that going to help us or should it help us? Um, think about de-extinction yeah, it's, I mean, again, and various other manipulations. It's another great question. I think de-extinction is a really interesting idea. We talk about it a lot, but I think we're a long way from de-extincting, whatever the verb is, any, any species. You know, we, we sometimes talk about cloning mammoths and stuff, and we do have the complete genome sequence of a mammoth, and that is a wonderful thing. That's an amazing piece of science. The practicalities of turning that genetic information into a living organism are, as far as I can make out, insurmountable right now. What would we do? We take the nearest relative in evolutionary terms, which would be a, an African or, or an Indian elephant, and somehow if we could make the genome of a, of a mammoth, if we could assemble it in such a way that it actually was viable in a cell, we then have to put it into the cell of, a, of an elephant, and then we'd have to implant that fertilised egg into a female elephant that could receive it. And w- without getting too gynaecological, that is a phenomenally difficult thing to do. The, the, <laughs> the vaginal tract of, a, of an African elephant is something like seven feet long and has a, a right-angled bend in it. Good luck um, with it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not impossible. It has been done. Artificial insemination in, in elephants has been done, I believe. But nevertheless, the point I'm making is all of these steps, whilst theoretically possible, are phenomenally difficult, right? So it would be an enormous undertaking to actually practically do it. And that's not even accounting for the question, should we do it? What would be the point of cloning a mammoth? 
the only answer that I can see is that it would be a boutique species. And I don't think that is an acceptable answer. I do, I do not think that it is worth investing or ethically putting an elephant through that process to create a species that we wouldn't really have a justification for doing it. Especially if you put that question, should we de-extinct any extinct species, if you put that opposite to can we use the same techniques to keep something alive that is now struggling, kakapo versus mammoth. Sure, Sure, in, well, in that light, it's even clearer. I think. I, I, I think it is too. I, I think I think it's very important that we think about these questions, and and you never quite know where the research into these types of questions is going to go. So I wouldn't necessarily restrict it, in in that form. My feeling is there are better ways to spend our money, and preserving living species, I think, is is one of them, such as the Kakapo project. The other thing is this: that you know, some people say, well, should we be saving the Kakapo? It's a species which. <laughs> doesn't do its own best to reproduce, just like the panda. But that's kind of not the point. I think if through human action we allow species to go extinct, I think that is a black mark on humanity's record. And I think we should do everything that we can to prevent that from happening. Right? So that's the sort of principled version. The second thing is that these, these are referred to within conservation as charismatic animals. Pandas, kakapos, rhinos... If the panda went extinct, what sort of impact would it have on the ecosystem where it lives in China? Probably not that much. The same you could say for the kakapo, right? That's not the point. The point is that we use these charismatic animals as icons for saying that conservation is important. Nevertheless, the development of, and now I'm speaking more about gene editing techniques than necessarily genomics or sequencing techniques, but they do go hand in hand in many ways. It has opened the door for deliberate manipulation of genomes. So we could foresee that there's a space for creating something that would not perhaps evolve in its own right or not in the same time frame. There's obviously good or bad uses in that. Have you got any views on where, you know, where are we going with that and where we should be going with that? Yeah. And I am thinking actually in the context of, you know, another black mark on humans on Earth... One possibly good way would be to create heat-resistant or soil-tolerant or drought-resistant crop plants. There's plenty of good uses in there, but you know, is there an ethical boundary or some other boundary that we should be thinking about? Well, it's a terribly difficult question, and, and I, I don't really know the answer. I don't have a definitive answer to that. I think that at the moment we need to look at the potential on a case-by-case basis. Gene editing in animals for the wild is something that I don't think has been done and should be considered extremely carefully. In terms of crops or genetically modifying plant organisms that might help protect the environment, I think that is something that is very much closer to a reality because, of course, you know, all over the world we have GM crops for food. I Except New Zealand. And the UK and Europe. And I support GM crops. I mean, I certainly support the science of the use of GM crops. Often GM crops are used as a sort of political argument, but from a scientific point of view, I think the benefits, the potential benefits outweigh the, the, the potential costs. So I am I'm broadly in support of the use of GM crops. The phrase that President Obama used in, in a slightly different context when talking about bio, biotechnology was prudent vigilance. And I think that that is probably the, the right model you know, these things are extremely regulated and the justifications for these types of gene editing are rightly restrictive. You know, one of the reasons I do what I do as a 
sort of science communicator, someone who talks about genetics in, in public, is so that these decisions can be made at a societal level with an informed public, right? So that we can have rational debates and that society, through governance, with, with input from scientists, can make a rational choice about what we actually want to do. Because these decisions shouldn't be made by, by scientists as scientists. They're made by scientists as members of the public. But sometimes these types of debates don't progress in a way... That, that I think is open and fair because they get hijacked or they get they get you know pressure groups in in either direction. It's often the conversations are are not well balanced because both of those types of lobby groups at every end of the you know, you know spectrum that prey upon a public for whom they don't necessarily understand the scientific questions at stake. So you know an informed society level debate is, is what we aim for. And if society decides that we shouldn't embrace these technologies in a way that I personally think we should, then so be it. That is democracy, the least bad system of governance that we had. That was Adam Rutherford, a BBC broadcaster who's been visiting New Zealand to host the Gene Genie Lecture Series. If you've missed it, you'll soon be able to catch up with the discussions here on RNZ National on Sunday afternoons throughout May. Thanks for listening to this Our Changing World podcast. And you can find more stories on our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. Kakite anō. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. Or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.